no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Excited to be back once again. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. It's good to be here. It's been a long, long, lonely time. No, it's great to be back. I'm happy to see you uh, survived your travels. Just barely. Which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit. Absolutely. And, uh, should be an exciting episode full of uh, fun. And um, scary music. Ooh. That's that's actually it's something that uh, I have to get on my phone somewhere. So that's yeah, it's, awesome. It's a have you heard that no. before? So it's it's this thing called the whistle song, and it originally was in a movie called Twisted Nerve, which was about is in really bad taste so it's about a uh, homicidal person who's young who convinces them to let him out of the asylum and then he like basically weasels his way into this wealthy family by pretending to be mentally challenged so they trust him <laughs> and he's you know obsessed with the daughter so while he's stalking her they play that song oh wow so it's a, it's a pretty it's an uh, Ennio Morricone composition and then um uh, one of our favorite thieves of all things cultural, Quentin Tarantino, yeah. grabbed it and stuck it in Kill Bill. So that's uh, where most people okay. know it from. Yeah, yeah. It's it from the, familiar. the Kill Bill cube. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, it's an awesome little piece of music. Very cool. But that's, yeah, that's just a little little thing on the fringe there. I've always wanted one of those devices that they have in the radio station that plays a little sound clip, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, so just hit a button and you hit a button, a whistle says, goes off or right, something or like a fart noise yeah. or something offensive like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what, that's what I'm asking for, for Christmas <laughs> <laughs> this year. That's good. I have one that we use at Halloween that is, it's actually, I should show it to you sometime. I don't think you've ever seen it. It's, uh, it's about maybe six inches square. And do you remember, uh, portable CD players? Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. So it looks like a plastic cheesy bright green portable cd player which and it doesn't play cds at all it has like five buttons on the top that make various scary noises like you know, creepy awesome. laughs and things like yeah. that so every halloween we pull it out of the box press the buttons and the creepy noises start and and then we know it's halloween again yeah i was so. the kid who rode the bus with his gigantic wallet full of cds and <laughs> sony walkman uh-huh uh, and I also have an overlap in which several of my CDs were burned CDs. So uh, that uh -huh. was me. That's a good thing. Yeah, there's, there's, it's interesting to think about how we've kind of moved through different right. technologies. I just got my first pair of Bluetooth earbuds. Mm. And it's actually kind of liberating and nice and mm -hmm. stuff like that. It's just it's just weird Irritating to think of, the charge. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, you have the little yeah. So and I didn't get the really expensive ones. There's some that are expensive that are apparently very, very good. Yeah. I got reasonably good ones for a lot less yeah. money. We're so. in a post iTunes world. How crazy is that? It is, yeah. Yeah. It's um have they actually split out the software already? I don't know if it's actually happened, but yeah. it sounds like it's the it's imminent. Yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of a reorganizing thing that I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. So, um, yeah. So anyway, that's always something to pay attention to is how your technology changes. I got this bug in my head that I wanted a, a nicer television. I was going to say, I, I see that you have a new laptop. I do. Yeah. This is because my old laptop had like basically gone over the hill Bummer. and needed. So I had to take it out and back behind the building and shoot yeah. it. Yeah. So. Office so space it's, it's style. Office space style. So it's dead, and this is the new thing. And the, the most exciting thing about it is it's a Mac with the uh, touch bar. Yeah. So that's pretty pretty weird. I'm have still you, learning yeah, how have to you use used it. it. Yeah, yeah, I have. Well, I have my uh, fingerprints programmed in. Nice. So when you want to steal it, you're going to have to kill me and chop <laughs> off my index finger. Maybe that's what you can you can use that. What if you only used your touch bar for program sounds and you just <laughs> a little sound effect? That would that would close the gap between the radio thing right, you want. Right. There you go. 
the perfect Christmas present. That's it. So you need to tell us about your exciting adventures this summer. Yes. Because this will be interesting. Um, uh, Adam uh, was able to take a group of students from the Gaylord College here at the University of Oklahoma to Arezzo, Italy, and other yep. Italian locations. Yeah. So we, uh, I just got back from a four-week stint. Um, and I have to say, this period of the uh, of time is the hardest for me like like this period right now the space in between a long exhausting trip like that and the semester about to start in august yeah uh it's uh it's really really hard to readjust for a lot of reasons but i talk about this with students a lot it's like the end of the semester i used to get this feeling as a student um and in fact it would happen for years afterwards but but the feeling of you've you're running a race, right? And you're going at full speed. I always imagine myself sort of going around a track, although I have no athletic ability. It was never on a track and field team. Um, but you finish the, you like you cross the finish line and you don't know how to like decelerate your body. Right. You just kind of feel like you're running and you don't know why. Like that's always the feeling I would get after a semester ended. Like that last final sprint through finals where you're like, mm-hmm. you're not sleeping and you're eating like trash. Um, <laughs> that's, and that's sort of how I feel right now because, um, you know, you'll hear people when I'll say I'm going to teach in Italy or I just got back from teaching in Italy. There's usually like a very similar comment that's like, oh, that's got to be difficult. What a terrible (laughs) job you have, man. I guess somebody's got to do it, though. It's like, actually, it is really difficult to do because it's uh, so we took 23 students, which the the largest group that had gone uh, was like last year, we took 13. So it was a lot more students, Mm -hmm. you know, and we're trying to uh, uh, readjust to uh, the number of people that we have on it. And it it is in a lot of ways a 24-7 job. It's not like you fly to another country and then you show up in a classroom and you wax poetically for an hour and a half and then you go back to your Italian villa, you know, and <laughs> yeah. eat pasta and drink wine and do it again tomorrow because there are trips that are involved. Yeah. You know, we go to a lot of museums. Uh, there's lots of travel. There's lots of independent travel days. There's logistics of getting people on and off the train and mm-hmm. making sure, you know, hotels are adequate and everyone's got everything they could ever, ever need, you know, and trying to recreate their American life in Italy because that's exactly what we'd like to do, you know, once we, once we go to another country. And so that's that, like you're doing this at all hours of the day, yeah. responding to questions. And that only, um, you know, gets, uh, uh, exponentially greater when you, when you take uh, significant more students. So, um, it was a ton of fun. It was in a fantastic group of students. The class was really cool. Um, I had an idea of taking a, uh, a social media writing type course and orienting it towards food. So it was called food writing and blogging. Uh, and we did a little bit of, of reading on um, how to uh, write for, you know, great, great food, what great food writing looks like, what good blogging looks like, what are good blogging techniques, but also uh, looking at Italian food history and some Mm -hmm. food and culture type uh, pieces as well. So just giving them an opportunity to get to understand the culture and rather than just teaching, you know, here's how you write a blog post. Um, And so what they ended up producing out of it was, uh, so, so in Arezzo where OU has a campus, Part of the program and part of what students pay for is this voucher program. And they get an X number of vouchers that they could use at local restaurants uh, that they can exchange a voucher and they get a specific menu um, that you know allows them to eat dinner there or whatever. And um, what they did for a blog is they created a blog that essentially reviewed all of the voucher restaurants that are provided at Oyarezzo. Ah, okay. And it's a very, very student-centric publication. Uh, the humor's witty. Um, you know, it's 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 certainly written towards an audience of a future OU Arezzo student. Um, so that is it. And you can check it out at, it's called all vouch for that, for the, the food vouchers, all vouch for that. <laughs> that com okay. is the, uh, is the, is the place where you can kind of see all the different reviews. And and beyond that, they did some other feature pieces that I think would be, they, they, they found to be valuable for 
uh, future students. So for instance, uh, how to use the grocery store at in Arezzo, which is, you know, an Italian grocery store is slightly different. Like for instance, you got to wear gloves to pick up uh, fruit and vegetables there. Uh, and everyone's always uh, really uh, intrigued by the the fresh orange juice machine that you can use there, the juicer. So you also get shamed if you. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. You don't put those gloves on. <laughs> you don't put the gloves on. You're. You you're... kind of get shamed no anyway, matter what. Right. Yeah. They the they're not uh, the, the yeah. whatever reason the grocery stores aren't the friendliest to foreigners. So I, I think it's it's important maybe to suggest that. Um, it, you know, to some people might sound like actually, you know, studying food might seem sort of like one of those like cast off classes. But, um, but, you know, when you start thinking about the importance of various pieces of our culture, um, and the way that our culture ties into traditions of eating in particular ways and how you contrast that with other cultures. So, you know, people have an idea of Italian food because there's a lot of Italian food in the U.S. because there was a lot of Italian immigration. Um, but those are th- that, that's where people's cultures are stored. I mean, that's totally. history. Yeah. So it's really important to learn how to think and talk about and argue about how food cultures develop. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, well, it's what we talked about a lot is food is such a gateway to have deeper conversations about other pieces of culture. Mm-hmm. And so they read a ton of pieces, uh, particularly there was, there's one book that we, that I had him read, which is a, uh, a collection of essays, uh, which every year there's sort of a, a best food writing of 20 XX uh, edition that comes out. Right. Uh, this happened to be, it's called the best, uh, American food writing of 2018. Uh, and it was, uh, edited by Ruth Rachel. And, um, what was really, really fascinating about this is it feels very current. I mean, some of the, some of the articles that are in it, uh, that were published in, uh, the New Yorker or, uh, Los Angeles times, uh, or whatever. I mean, it, it, you know, ESPN, um, you know, I mean, essentially what we're, t- what I was telling the students is, you know, this is always, it's, it's not, it's not necessarily commentary on food, although, you know, it's not just food reviews. Uh, these are, you know, conversations about our cultures and tension and religion and technology and spirituality and, you know, all the things that come with talking about something like food. So that was a really cool Right. Uh, cool way. And I mean, just, you know, to Italians, food is something uh, I, I would argue is a little bit more meaningful to them to than, than to us, which is sort of this, uh, you know, means to an end uh, necessity to them. Uh, you know, food is uh, food is much more about family. It's about time spent together. Um, it's about, uh, locality, you know, there much mm-hmm. more of what you're going to eat there isn't, hasn't been shipped across the country itself. So, right. Yeah. There's also the, uh, the, the sort of like longer lunch break where a lot of people yeah. go home to eat and right. eat their mama's cooking <laughs> Yeah, and then dinners are longer, start later. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about as a, you know, it's, it won't be a shock to anyone to consider that Italy is predominantly a Catholic country. Right. And, you know, if, if you are or are not Catholic, you know, one thing to be aware of is that, you know, communion, the central part of a mass is a meal. Yeah. You know, it just happens to be this very bizarre meal where you're, you know, basically sharing the body of Christ. So, you know, food plays that kind of a role, too. Yeah. It's really, really deeply culturally significant to think about spirituality and food in relationship yeah. to each other. Yeah, and I talked to the students a little bit about that is, you know, I mean, one thing we don't, in American education, there is such a distinct separation of church and state that it's not really a topic we discuss much, mm-hmm. but it's inescapable in Italy, right? Because um, the, there's a much blurred line between um, you know, literally at the church and the state itself. Um, but it's also deeper, you know, this, it's a deeper cultural significance. I'd even argue in their country itself. I mean, to see, to see the art or to see the history of the country is to also see it through the lens of, uh, you know, the church itself and, and their relationship with church is very, very different than, than what we'd see here. You know, they, they probably um, uh, rely on it maybe a little bit less than than the you know the traditional uh, American does too. So it's it's really interesting. But from a instructor perspective, uh, who 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 knows where to draw a hard line in the classroom? Yeah, it's really interesting to go to a place where you you can't necessarily do that. And so like one thing that you know we yeah you experience is I mean you take students into 
like the Sistine Chapel. Um, and you get to see something from students that you normally wouldn't see. I mean, a lot of students, I wouldn't say a lot, but there were a few that made comments of like, I was caught off guard by how emotional that was, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, maybe it's just because they weren't, they, they, you know, they weren't prepared for it or they just didn't understand, you know, how overwhelming an experience can be to go through St. Peter's Basilica or through the Sistine Chapel or any of these, mm-hmm. you know, these religious spaces, whether you come from a more religious background or not, you know, I saw it from students who, who had and had not, you know, had it, but still felt something uh, very powerful by visiting those type of spaces. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting experience from a instructor perspective to to see that. And that's, you know, my argument for study abroad or education abroad, or even just, you know, the type of school in which we represent in general, you know, is that you get to do this kind of stuff. I mean, you can, right. cause you can get a credential anywhere. You can take classes and, you know, earn credits that go towards a piece of paper wherever you'd like to, um, you know, but college to me, at least my perspective of what college can be is so much more than the credential itself. It mm-hmm. is these type of experiences. And from a faculty perspective, I don't, I don't get to see those happen a lot. Right. I, I am, I'm well, sort it's easy, of, it's easy to forget when you drop into the specific things you have to right. do day to day. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so our relationship, the you the the normal faculty student relationship exists in this three hour context in which you enter my space, my classroom, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then, you know, we, we and we're a, a little bit of an exception to the rule. We see our students outside of class a little bit more because our students are, you know, working on projects a lot of the time. But, you know, within the general general sense of things, we don't see the life outside of that three hour context. And that, that's really, really rewarding to, from a faculty perspective as you get to, you know, you get to experience uh, all the other emotions that come with being a uh, being a college student and helping yeah. them out. Not to say that's not emotionally draining for someone like me. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, coming from a background of having taught high school for a while, where mm. that uh, that that separation doesn't happen, right? Um, there, there, but there's a difference there, and I think you're hitting on something really important about the idea that, you know, the idea of a university, and this is something I think is is not something that people talk about as much as they should. You know, when you get when you get to know people at a university, you you get to know the faculty. They're from all sorts of different places, and universities are places where essentially it's sort of like the whole educated world comes together to to a particular geographical location to interact with people who are usually have some kind of regional connection. In the case of these kind of public institutions like ours. But then they're supposed to be being exposed to the whole big world right. and all of its, you know, all of its different phases, all of its different pieces of culture. And so it's really important for students to to, I think, to be able to seize and experience that range too. That they're experiencing things that are helping them to become, to, to sort of see the, the the fringes of what they can be. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember having been there before. I don't know if you went to see the David statue. Yeah. This, yeah. yeah. There, there's a moment in, when you walk into the academia where you, it's sort of like you walk past the ticket thing and then you make a right-hand turn and the David statue is at the end of this right. long and it's just jaw dropping yeah. every time. And yeah. you can see it affect the students too, by yeah. and large. They're just sort of like, Oh, that's why this is a big yeah. deal. So, so an interesting. I, this is my second time going to see the David. Uh, I have a good story about this one in particular. Uh, this year, I decided that usually what we did last year is we just go into the museum and students are sort of let loose and they, you know, they stand around the David for ten or fifteen minutes and they might wander the, the you know, a few other corridors. But then they're sort of like, you know, I don't know what to do now. It's not like a guided tour or anything. So, what we did this this year is I bought audio guides for them, so headphones that at least you know if they wanted to get a little bit more information about different pieces of art, knowing that. Uh, 95% of my students have never taken an art history class, you know, Mm -hmm. to do so. Anyways, uh, this year is also traveling with my two daughters, my five and seven year old, Uh. and they happen to have kids versions of audio guides. And so, uh, I bought for them, uh, and they were free to come into the museum, uh, the kids version, which is narrated by David. So, and I, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so, it's, great. so it's little kid David is sort of the, you know, one of the narrators uh-huh. and he's kind of asking questions of another narrator. But so you got to hear the, the sort of the story of David from David. And, um, I'll be darned if all of my students left 
And my daughter is like, I want to go through the entire thing again, you know, <laughs> uh, and which tells me I might just recommend that all students just get the kids version because the kids version <laughs> is way more exciting and has has more of a narrative to it. You yeah. know, and David's like, well, we should go find this thing. You know, let's go around here. Like, look for this and look yeah. for clues, you know. And so we had a, a really good time. I spent probably, you know, twice as long as I did last year in there mm-hmm. just because you know, my daughter wanted to, wanted to peruse the whole museum, make sure she heard the, the whole story uh-huh. from David. So that was really cool. That is good. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, I think that that's one of the, one of the things about sort of like the, the, the international travel museum thing is it's sort of like trying to remember, cause we, you know, when we're, when we're traveling, we kind of pack a lot of these things together. Yeah. And so it's like trying to make sure that you're, you know, kind of available for it, that you're open right. to it and, you know, kind of able to, because there's always this question, like, why would people care about this for hundreds or thousands of years? You know, when you're seeing the the Sistine Chapel or you're seeing some of these other things that are kind of the signals of this, you know, kind of European Western tradition, you know, how do you, how do you negotiate the significance of them? Um, sort of like the the students I've talked to who've gone to the live in Paris and seen the mm. Mona Lisa. It's mm-hmm. always an interesting conversation because they're almost all they've almost always first seen it. The ones who right. you know are privileged enough to travel, they've seen it in a context where they don't have to do much of anything with right. it. And so it's just sort of like, well, you know, and so there because it's it's just you don't get it yeah. at first. It takes a little bit, so you have to, you know, take some time. It's sort of like I always think of it as like when you're watching something that, like, say, a film that you watched and you were just kind of blown away by it, and then you kind of feel compelled to go back and look at it again, and you look at it knowing what's going to happen, but you're also just noticing a bunch of different signs of things that yeah. you know you wouldn't have picked up on the first time. Which is interesting to do this trip a second time, you know. Um, and it's interesting to watch people do it for the first time because you're so interested in like the picture of, you know, taking pictures of, I mean, it's one of the photos you often see of the Mona Lisa is like all of the cell phones now in front right, of it, yeah. you know, and it's, it's hard to get like, a clean, a clean picture of it, but it's interesting to, to go back to places like the Colosseum in Rome, you know, after sort of you, you, the first time is for me personally was, was very overwhelming, you know, and it's so much taken that first time as well. And, uh, to, to see how I react to it a second time, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, and to, you know, and also go to places like this is our first time going to Venice. We went to Venice this time and, Uh um, you know, it's, that's an interesting city to see certainly through the perspective. It's incredibly beautiful. It's very picturesque and everyone's got their cameras out, you know, no matter wherever you turn, you know, every bridge is occupied by, by Instagram models. So it's a, (laughs) it's an interesting experience to to kind of see how, you know, I I would be, I'd love to see someone try to quantify how uh, the growth in social media photography has impacted travel and tourism Mm -hmm. because I think people genuinely want to get out and see more maybe not always for the best of intentions um, but uh, but certainly because it exists you know and they Mm -hmm. they want to get the picture so is your has your I'm just wondering from the experience of having taught about this has your thinking about food culture changed at all or are you thinking about it differently did you see the students thinking about it differently as they had to deal with this Oh, that's a good question. I mean, we got to talk about it a lot more than I feel like I did last, you know, last year. Yeah. Talk about it from a perspective of what's available and what's not available and, you know, sort of where, um, you know, what what American food culture looks like. So one example that I, I remember talking about one day was there's a, a, a fairly popular product that's coming out called Soylent. Uh, <laughs> which is really interesting <laughs> given the name of it, but you can find it now. It used to be kind of something you would just order online, but now you can find it in like target. Yeah. And it's, you know, a drink, which, uh, supposedly has, and I guess it's, it's true, you know, all of the, all of the nutrients that you would need for one meal in a drink itself. And it was sort of, uh, it's a, it's a Silicon Valley born, you know, essentially what they would, they, they branded early. I'm assuming this is still the branding campaign, but as like a productivity, drink you know it's like why bother leaving my desk you know to to have lunch when i can just get all the nutrients you know in in this one <laughs> little drink itself um and it's it's sort of like the 21st century and when i think about it it's not like it's not it's not branded as like a diet drink but it's sort of like a 21st century slim fast you know it's kind of kind of what I'm, it is i'm sorry i just saw something that i have to 
Okay. I'll get to it. Yeah. I, I do have to get say that this is a spoiler alert. Okay. Because I'm about to, to do a, because you know where the, the term soylent comes from. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but I just, it's just funny because I just did the Google search on, on the term soylent and people also ask the first question, is soylent made from humans? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because of course that's the, by the way, if you haven't, uh, in your, in your consumption of films from the 1970s, you need to go back and find Soylent Green. Yeah. It's a fantastic film from the time when a lot of, uh, dystopian science fiction was concerned with the overpopulation of the earth. And uh, so that, on the one hand, it's this very interesting. It was based on a Harry Harrison novel. Um, but Charlton Heston and Edward G. Robinson is in it. Edward G. Robinson is just brilliant. He plays a character, an older character. And, you know, Charlton Heston is doing his best. That, that thing he did in that part of his career between Planet of the Apes and that and a couple of Omega Man, a couple other films he did where he was doing these really kind of radical science fiction films. So that's where the yeah know, the, the soil thing. So find the movie Soil yeah. Green and watch it because it's really good. And it's like, and that is like the the meme of American food culture in a lot of ways. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's like we are we are trying to scientifically solve like the what we consider to be a nuisance that we have to you know consume nutrients. And right. It, it's just, it's really really interesting. And so um, I I would be interested. Uh, you know, one thing that I talked about this year that I didn't talk about last year uh, was about just about reentry, about, you know, coming back to your own culture. And it's not like they've been away that long. They've been away for four, four weeks. And it's not like they're, they're around other Americans. They're not having to speak a language. So it's not, it's not like the same of, of what reentry would be for someone who maybe spent a year abroad. Uh, but just, you know, just about the idea of, of you're going to, you'll have a little bit of reverse culture shock when you come back. Uh, and it's, it's normal to be uh, uh, partially overly critical to your own culture when you come back. Right. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you don't have to be, and you know, you don't have to look at everything over there was good and everything back over here is bad. And, but just, I would be interested to talk to students and see how being, you know, being back sort of how it's uh, affected them. Yeah. I think the, yeah, some of the things that, you know, we sort of, I think see as annoyances when we're first in a different cultural context, I think, you know, trying to think about those not as annoying differences, but as differences that tell you something about the culture you're trying to get, you know, an right. understanding of and, and kind of bridge across. Um, I was going to mention just because I had an opportunity last week to take a look at a couple episodes and I have the book for this thing called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Yeah. Which is uh, by uh, Samin. Someone no else mentioned that. Yeah, Samin Nosrat. So that needs to be something we, we read. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's like a whole, it's almost like a... Um, a way of thinking about the main ingredients that make food yeah. what it is. And she is one of the, uh, I mean, the, the woman who does this program, there's four episodes that I think are on Netflix right now that, that you can watch. And she is one of the most appealing people and she's a list a regular person. Mm. She's not a TV person, but she uh, has this like enthusiasm for everything she does. She's really into tasting all the ingredients of things as you're putting it together. And each of the episodes is taking a con concept of one of these components and kind of doing an hour focusing on how it plays into what you're yeah. doing when you eat. So, and, and that's cool. Yeah. And, and actually the fat episode takes place in Italy. Oh, interesting. And you actually, they, oh, they it's, it's, they slaughter a pig. <laughs> Yeah, And that sounds really gross, but actually the way that she does it is emphasizing how, because when you think about fat as a category, we unfortunately have a lot of different categorical misunderstandings about fat and how it, but, but its function in food is really a big deal. Yeah. You know, all the oils and the butters and the margarines and, and, and then just the animal fat and all of this that we use that are part of our cuisines around the world. Um, but, but it's her enthusiasm for this, her like identifying these different pieces and trying to come to understand how they come together to create a culture's under a, a culture's, a, a food culture, you know, that's developed slowly over time. And, um, yeah, it's an did, amazing series. We did watch uh, a little bit of Anthony Bourdain, which was cool because not everyone had, you know, was able to be exposed to him. Um, and, uh, and, and his stuff is just an interesting, different lens on, food television you know if you if you've grown up watching food network and you've watched 
uh, Guy Ferrari or Bobby Flay, <laughs> you know, I mean, like this, you know, Anthony Bourdain was like, like was notoriously anti those type of people. Yeah, well, and, he was also, he was anti food network because of, yeah. the, because of the contractual thing, c- conflicts that he had with them and with several of the people that they were involved with. He'd tell some stories about working with some food network people in, um, medium raw, one of his books and they're hilarious. Yeah. They're just hilarious stories. Yeah. And he is, you know, and I mean, we, we, I had him read, uh, one of his pieces, sort of like an early piece that broke him, which was the, uh, don't read this after eating, I think is what the article's called or something like that. Or, uh, don't eat before reading. But anyways, it was like a piece that came out in 1999 sort of talking about the culture of the, of the, the back of the, the back of the house of a restaurant uh-huh. and, uh, just really good. I mean, he's such a, such a good writer and, um, the way that he would do, you know, again, if you watch Anthony Bourdain, you realize that he is, I mean, food is just a way to, to, introduce a culture right you yeah. know but it's it's rare i mean the food plays a big role in it but it's not just about you know looking at this you know this the, the food in a specific type of way which you kind of see on the on the on the food mm-hmm. network so it's, it's really fascinating to get to get to introduce him as well yeah oh that's great i think that's that's fantastic because i think yeah food is culture food yeah. is where culture is absolutely and one of the great things about what he did on television was kind of opening up those cultures food as a way in but then yeah kind of opening it up to music and and late night activities yeah. and drinking and all the other parts that you know make cultures yeah. uh, interesting. <laughs> hey, you mentioned that you had showed our podcast to some people. Would you would I you did. mind yeah. sharing so that? There story? was yeah, there was a there was a uh, a summer institute for uh, teachers in Oklahoma, media teachers and who are teaching mostly at high school, somewhere at uh, at uh, middle schools in Oklahoma. And uh, they're very curious about podcasting. Um, and so I came in and did a little thing with them, and I told them about the genesis of our podcast and what we did on it and played a little bit so they could kind of see what we did. And it was really interesting to interact with them because they're I was suggesting to them, and, and this is like a general suggestion I have, is that podcasting is something that can be done with fairly simple equipment on a real regular basis yeah. by anyone. So if you happen to be listening to this and you're thinking about doing a podcast, do it. And as we've suggested on this before, make sure you do at least four or five episodes before you give up because totally. it takes that long. And I told them that. So I brought them into the room that we're actually using to record this podcast right now and talked to them about what we did and how we approached and everything like that. And about these these advantages, um, in fact, I talked about this at a media literacy conference I was at too, this way of thinking about dialogue dialogue about the way people naturally interact with each other that podcasts are so good at. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that engages with them. And so I, I could kind of, as I was talking to them and hearing some of their ideas of how they thought they might, what they listened to, which was some stuff I've never heard of, uh, but, you yeah. know, specialized stuff because there's so much of it now. Um, but it was just, re- it was a really exciting conversation to think about, you know, what, what you can do with this with kids, yeah. you know, what you could do in terms of getting them involved in making stuff like this that would give them sort of like what you were saying with the the David podcast. Thing. Yeah. I mean, podcasts from all sorts of different perspectives, um, I think, are can be an important part of this world that we're in. Yeah. It's really, and it's always, for me, it's like I have more stuff I want to listen to than I have time for. Totally. So. Yeah. Usually my go-to example, and I might have mentioned this in the podcast before, I don't know, but um, of how simple podcasting can be is a podcast I've listened to a dozen episodes from is from a guy who used to be a tour manager in the the punk scene. Uh, he he grew up, I want to say he grew up in like New Jersey or something like that. But he's sort of he's involved in that East Coast scene. Anyways, his name is Neil Rubenstein, and um, he he's no longer in it. Older guy uh, now lives in commutes from Jersey to New York has a podcast called in traffic with Neil Rubenstein where basically he just uses his commute time to like, he'll call a friend and then just (laughs) record the phone conversation and then, you know, just someone who used to be involved in it or whatever. And then he'll post it as a podcast. And it's like, it was like, it's so simple. Like there's no special technology needed. It just, he's using like a, a phone, you know, recording app on his, 
on his smartphone to kind of create the podcast itself. It's, you know, and so people get way bogged down of like, I've got to have microphones and expensive software to edit it. And it's like, no, nah, not really. Yeah. I mean, you don't, I mean, you know, we, uh, we've, we've always contended that we've got a little bit of overkill as it relates, you know, to, to necessary yeah. technology. Yeah, the, 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 the richness of, of what we have access to is unfair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, hey, you know, it's it's interesting. I was thinking also about um, the, so and I'm going to run around the tree once, and then I'll get to the point of this, but <laughs> there was a blackout in New York. Did yeah, you, did yeah. you notice? Yes. All the electricity went out? Yeah. And because the thing that I hear and what you're talking about with this is this this ability that people have that, that I don't even know that they realize that there's this like spontaneous creativity that comes out under circumstances like yeah. the way this guy's producing the show and um i if if you i don't know if you had a chance to look but if you look on the um in the big pile of videos that ends up being posted you'll see all these responses to the blackout in new york and there was some amazing stuff people were doing mm. there was a symphony orchestra that was playing and the electricity went out and so they moved out to the street and they played for whoever was there yeah. and it was amazing and my favorite part why well, I, I was recently in new york and got to see the play hades town okay and hades town which won the tony for best musical and i'm not i'm not inherently a musical person i think you're probably more of a musical person probably than so am. hades town was fantastic ah, wow. it was it was dark yeah <laughs> basically it's a retelling of um the story of uh eurydice's being you know stuck in hades and Orpheus having to go to find her, but they basically juxtapose it over something that feels kind of like an Americana, New Orleans, uh, jazzy feel place. And um, so it's it's a great play, and you can find bits and pieces of it online. It's definitely worth checking out. It's beautifully done. There's one character who sings in a register that's lower than anyone I've ever talked to, and um, the, um, the, the other central character is singing in this high kind of almost falsetto register, and there's just a lot, it's just a lot of beautiful stuff in, in the play. Very dark, though. Um, but, so the blackout happens, they move outside, and they start improvising this music wow. about the blackout. And it's just, you can find it on, on uh, YouTube. You can find these bits and pieces of them doing this just spontaneous blackout song. And, of course, they're really talented, you know, Broadway musical theater folks. But, you know, they're just out in the street making art. That's awesome. <laughs> and it was just it was just a fantastic thing to see having, you know, see this because I had seen the play, like I said, about two weeks ago. And, uh, yeah, and to see them, out, see the actors I saw yeah. on stage out on the street through YouTube just doing the spontaneous thing was just amazing. Yeah, that's cool. I, I uh, kind of I I like those things that almost just happen spontaneously due to the constraints that you have. And I remember this is probably years ago now, but um, some students like organizing like a silent rave in the library during finals week, oh, you know, yeah. and that was like a really cool big deal. I don't know, if, <laughs> you know, I don't, can, can the country come together and do silent raves anymore? Have, you, have you seen Have you seen us yet? No. Oh, okay. Well, I don't want to. Okay. But there was in, in, in the eighties there was the remember Hands Across America? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's an important part of the movie us. I we are the world. You. Right, yeah. We um, can do this. Yeah, yeah. So but yeah, no, that that kind of like spontaneous activity like that. I used to love the the videos that would show up of the you know, the the spontaneous events that would happen in public places. Yeah. There was one where uh, a bunch of people and some of these are very calculated, they're not right. really spontaneous, but they feel but they feel like they're spontaneously in the environment. But they actually ended up restaging the night watch painting. <laughs> so there's all these people moving around and running it's like you're in a shopping mall and all of a sudden you're in the middle of a medieval mystery and then they all and then all of a sudden they freeze and it's the night watch painting and it's just fantastic it's just a really an amazing tableau um but that and then the ones where it was like uh you know musical uh musical groups kind of spontaneously coming together in train right. stations and things like that yeah i'm trying to remember um the the group uh improv everywhere that's what it was yeah. where like one time they like in, uh, in, invaded like a uh, a best buy and they were all wearing khakis and a blue polo, you know, and just like all of a sudden, like hundreds of people, uh -huh. you know, came in or yeah, like the, I think the one in the train station was they just like froze in place, you know, in a train station at a, at a certain time. Uh, that stuff's cool. Mm -hmm. That stuff's fun. Yeah. I like those kind of events. I think they're really interesting. There's a, uh, there's a uh, guy who I'm trying, Reverend Billy. Have we talked about Reverend Billy? No. Reverend, so Reverend Billy, <laughs> you can see some of what he does and there's a, uh, there's a documentary 
about culture jamming. It's called Culture Jam, actually. And there's a section of it that follows um, Reverend Billy. Reverend Billy is like an anti-capitalist preacher. And he and so what they should do is they shoot him going into the Disney store and doing what <laughs> sounds like a, a traditional Southern Baptist revival speech, you know, just kind of engaging everybody in the evils of capitalism. <laughs> and it's fantastic. And then, of course, they call the police and the police usher him out and everything like that. So he's kind of an activist who's come up with this really yeah. wonderful shtick that, you know, again, it's sort of like turning these places inside out, turning the, the places in our culture so that they're like kind of serving a different purpose. Yeah. So I like that quite a bit. On the opposite end, uh, we, uh, much against probably our our desire, if, if the world didn't have these type of incidents, you know, I think we'd, we'd both be happier people. But you discussed discussing uh, the recent uh, Trump tweet and what has happened. In Did the you last... hear that noise? It was a bunch of people stopping the podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, they're going there. Yeah. <laughs> We we do we we honestly uh, we try so hard to not talk politics because it it consumes in, in my opinion it's 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 not even like wanting to be apolitical it just it consumes so much uh, uh, space in media right now yeah. that it's fun to talk about everything else you know because it, it seems like anything else is is such a such a marginal slice of what it used to be yeah um, that it you know it's like very intentional trying to not talk about it. And then there are things that happen that's like you can't not talk about yeah. certain certain activities that happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you know, again, the, the kind of the comic frame of the whole podcast is that those are the things that are bringing us closer to the sure. uh, eschaton is a fancy way of saying it, but the end times. And um, just because it, it, it just feels sometimes like we're just drifting toward this like calamity of, of dysfunction and it's just terribly frightening. Um, but the only thought that and I don't know, did you have any particular thoughts about how you're how you're processing this as part of the world that you live in? Well, you go ahead. I was, well, I was just going to say that the thing to me and what I've heard is that it, you know, I, I think that reacting to, of course, like the emotional reactions are completely understandable. Um, it's, cre it's, it's really creating some complexity, but some of that complexity I think is important to think about because what you're realizing is that people have really, really radically different ideas of what racism is. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and it's not something I think, you know, there's, there are, I, I would say, two ways to come to an understanding of racism. One is to be um, subject to it because it's the way you're treated because you're not a person of privilege. Um, so I just watched The Hate You Give, which I hadn't seen before. Fantastic film. And it outlines a lot of these ideas of what people get and don't get about what racism is. Um, and it's, I think it, there's a lot in there that one can think about. But for people who don't, learn it, learn about racism that way. And even for, in some of those cases to sort of like learn how it functions for the rest of culture, it's, it's something that you have to really carefully think about. You have to understand it historically. Uh, you have to understand what the notion of history has to do with it. And rather than getting all caught up in whether, you know, some particular thing happening right now is or isn't racist, which, you know, in this case, I'd say, you know, for my own part, it was clearly racist. But but it's but what what more importantly can be thought about is so what's the definition of racism that you're walking around with or that the people you're talking and interacting with are walking around with? Because it's really complicated and it's, you know, you may have good intentions and at the same time end up doing horrible things that just perpetuate uh, uh you know, perpetuate this. The idea, of course, that, you know, the suggestion and the tweet was go back to where, you know, go back to where you came from to a bunch of Americans who've actually successfully run for and won seats in Congress, you know, is so obvious on its face. But when you hear people talking about it who don't see it as racist, to me, it raises this issue of, okay, I think it's important to understand what they think racism yeah. is and how does it function in their lives and how do you, you know, the, the, the two important characteristics of empathy and trust, I think, are cast aside. And it's important to keep those in focus. How do we develop more empathy? How do we develop a larger level of trust in circumstances where really distressing things like that are happening, really bad things um, that, you know, I mean, just thinking about how is all this going to look from the point of view of a nine-year-old kid. You know, it's, it's really, it's a very, very difficult time. 
Um, and then part of the suggestion that you were that you were mentioning before is, what is it that we're being distracted from? What yeah. is it that we're not talking about or thinking about because we're talking about and thinking about this loud, splashy, you know, thing that happened? Yeah. Um, very well said. So the thing that I, I mean, and a lot of where my perspective has, I don't want to say changed, but has been influenced over the last few months is from a book that you had recommended, which is White Fragility. Um, and there's no arguing what he said was racist, you know. Uh, it's so much more blatant. And then, of course, the I think a thing that's getting mi- mess or missed a lot is just the overt sexism, you know, and the fact that he's coming after these women not just because of their race but also just because of their their they are becoming uh you know influential uh women within the within the party which he you know sees as as the enemy itself and mm-hmm. so he wants to he wants to try to squash any of that you know coming coming to bear which is really really un- unfortunate to see so well so yeah the um i was just going to add the uh this is from a huffington post story which i know that i know where they sit politically but um the u.s equal employment opportunity commission has specific rules that protect people mostly immigrants against employment discrimination on the basis of their nation of origin um and uh, they are quoted uh, ethnic slurs and other verbal or physical conduct because of nationality are illegal if they are severe or pervasive and create an intimidating, hostile or offensive work environment, interfere with work performance or negatively affect job opportunities. Examples of potential unlawful conduct includes insults, taunting or ethnic epithets such as making fun of a person's mm. foreign accent or mm. comments like, quote, go back to where you came wow. from, whether made by supervisors or coworkers. So this is from the mm. EEOC identifying this as, you know, aggressively unacceptable behavior. Yeah. So uh, so there you are. <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it kind of takes the mystery away. But, you know, again, it's sort of like I think. Trying to understand, you know, what kind of an idea of what's transpiring exists in people's heads so that they would want to just sort of like excuse this or apologize for this. Yeah. And it's and, and you know, I'm, I'm certainly not I, I would never want to think this through for anyone else. But I think we are all obliged to think through carefully. How do we come to the attitudes about race that we have and how can we think about it better? How can we engage with it in a way that. Um, that that acknowledges the experiences of other people that actually creates a better sense of empathy and yeah. trust in the long run. Part of me is such a pacifist that, you know, I, I will say stuff like, can't we just all come together, you right. know? And, um, and, uh, and I, and I, in some respect, I do mean that, you know, and the part of me will say stuff like, oh, I, I wish he wouldn't have said that because I don't want to go through, you know, this week of media or whatever it is, you know, whatever it will be. Um, and the other part of me is like, no, those are exactly the type of conversations that we, you know, we need to have. And, right. and the fact that, um, you know, that, that it's being given this much oxygen, you know, as much of me wants to say, don't say that out loud with such a megaphone because it's only going to institutionalize that type of thinking more like it, you know, whether people want to admit it or not, you know, minds get changed because people are talking about this and because we don't, don't allow you know, people don't, don't fall silence or, you know, allow a, a leader like this to just talk like it. So, you know, I've, I've been, uh, I guess as encouraged as I can be about, you know, the, the, the conversation that that's gone on, uh, and refuse to believe that someone's electability, you know, gives, uh, you know, gives rightfulness to something like, you know, mm-hmm. that, 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 that they say. Yeah. Well, and we're heading into election season. We only have what a year <laughs> right? <laughs> before there'll be a democratic national convention and we'll know who's going to be running against Trump. So between now and then it'll be interesting to consider, you know, um, and I think one of the things this podcast can do is, you know, consider how is the media doing handling something like this? Yeah. Um, I think it's really interesting to watch how they're, uh, how they're approaching it, um, who they're going to talk to, what they're going to say, how they're going to interrogate the issue, what position are they going to take in terms of describing what happened and then thinking about the effects that it has. Yeah. I mean, um, and, and it's important to remember that, you know, his Trump's reaction was coming from a space in which they were being critical of what's happening at the border, which is also a major media story, right? I mean, the, what he's reacting to is is the reaction in, in 
uh, in which, you know, these women, uh, some of which, I believe some of which, I don't know, I want to say that all of them, but ha have visited some of these spaces uh, that, you know, people are being held mm -hmm. at and, um, and are, are trying to, you know, really fight for making sure that they're, they're taken care of. And that's essentially what he's, you know, coming out against. And right. It's, it's, it's yeah. You know, it's so, I mean, you know, race runs so deep within this story. It's not just about the tweet itself, but who's reacting and what they're reacting to and what they're fighting for, you know. Well, and I don't uh, think there's anywhere you could go anyway where race isn't a factor. It's, this is a global thing. This yeah. is, this results in, uh, you know, in people, I have, I have, I have to add, I was uh, last night. Because I am, in fact, a nerd. I was watching one of the episodes of the David Eagleman series on the brain, and he was talking about, and he, he raises this really interesting question. The premise of the episode is that what we are in our heads, our, our neurophysiology, is a result of interacting with other people. And so there's a very important way that, and he talks about facial recognition and learning about faces and reproducing it for ourselves, blah, blah, blah. And he ends, and then he leads up to this question and it was kind of astounding. So how do we get from people who are so engaged that we're basically made out of the people we interact with to being able to commit acts of genocide? How do we get there? How do we... Um, how do we so go through a process of dehumanizing another group of people that we identify as different from ourselves that we're completely okay with, you know, murders taking place? And he talks about what was happening in uh, Bosnia in the early 90s. Um, talked about a particular example of, of a local dentist who was a Muslim, I believe, who was um, basically strung up and left to die over a long, over a number of days. And people were just, you know, kids were walking by going to school and everything like that. So that's one of those things, you know, because the opposite of, you know, the empathy and trust is the mistrust and complete lack of recognizing the humanity in other people. And, it, you know, it sure would be nice to have much better public conversations about those issues, I think. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, Eagleman's talk about this was, you know, these are, there, you know, there are things that happen in our brains that we can actually, um, you know, try to approach them differently and try to hang on to their, to our empathetic capacity if we can. So, but it was, it was grim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not to get too dark towards the end of the heavy, episode here. Heavy, but, heavy stuff, but yeah. uh, that's it. We'll be you'll be around, right? It will be, and right. we'll have many adventures as the as the season uh, as we roll toward our next semester of of the fall. The summer is rapidly drawing to a close. Um, I think we are due for a recap of Stranger Things three. I think so. I think that's, uh, and I think as a matter of fact, I think we will bring in the person we had before because I think uh, Yvette Walker, who's one of our colleagues here, enormous fan of the show, and she'll be happy to come in and talk with us about. That'd be it. awesome. I so, think I think that one we should go long too. That yeah. one might be a longer one. I think that's we need to right. We need to settle in with that one right. and probably get into it. There's a lot of storylines in this one right. that I think are worth talking about. And I think we should spoil things. And actually spoil things that, that are, we can make up some stuff <laughs> just to confuse Pete. No, we won't do that. That would be unfair. But yeah, no, I think that that would definitely be a lot lighter than talking about genocide. And, totally. Yeah. All right. Okay. Until then. Thank you. Good to be back. <laughs> <laughs>